Welcome to a sit-down with Secretary of State Steve Simon to learn about recent changes in Minnesota's election law. I'm Laura Hedlund with AM950 Radio. And I'm Katie DeSalle with Frogtown Community Radio. Thank you, Secretary of State Steve Simon, for participating in this special sponsored by Let People Vote, the Twin Cities chapter. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. How, how are you today? I'm great, especially considering we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects. Yes, you are here to join us to talk about all the new election laws, voting laws in the state of Minnesota. A lot of changes this year. So um, give us a brief recap of what changes were made. Yeah, well, let me just zoom out a little bit and say this is a really, really big deal. I would say that we haven't seen this level of changes in terms of impact and scope for probably 50 years since 1973. So this isn't just a normal round of everyday legislative changes. These were really deep and impactful. So I'll give you some just top-line examples. Uh, we now in Minnesota will have what's called automatic voter registration. We will now have something called pre-registration for high school students, for 16 and 17-year-olds. We restored the right to vote for 55,000 Minnesotans who have left prison behind. Um, we impose new protections for our election workers and for voters themselves to guard against disinformation that interferes with their right to vote. We now have what's called a permanent absentee voter list. So if someone just wants to vote absentee from here on out, they will automatically get sent a ballot to them. We have renewed opportunities for early voting, which tracks with what people want, really, in terms of uh, the, the trend in voting, not necessarily on election day, but during the absentee voting period. And the list goes on. The fact is I think we really strengthened our democracy this last legislative session in ways that are going to that are going to affect everyday Minnesotans in so so many ways. You know, Minnesota does such a good job and has over the years in terms of voting. For 3 out of the last 4 elections we've been number 1 in the country in voter turnout and I think that's for a reason. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's a coincidence. One of the key reasons we are that way and I think we'll remain that way is because we've always valued strong pro-voter, pro-access laws. Laws that say, hey, we're not going to make voting unnecessarily complicated for people. We want to make it as easy as we reasonably can, knowing that we always have to balance access with security and accuracy. And we do. We've gotten that balance right. I'm really confident that these laws will continue to get that balance right and continue to put us in a real national leadership position. Uh, for this interview, we want to focus on four important changes that directly affect voters. The restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions who are no longer incarcerated, pre-registration of 16 and 17-year-olds, the permanent absentee ballot list, and automatic voter registration. So let's start by uh, talking about voting changes for those who have experienced the prison system. Secretary Simon, a new law restores the right to vote to people convicted of felonies once they are no longer incarcerated. As of June 1st of this year, people who were previously incarcerated can legally register to vote, even if they are on supervised release or probation or on work release. Can you describe the situation that existed prior to this new law, the rationale for the new law, and who's affected by it? Yeah, great question, actually. Um, this is a really big deal for so many people in Minnesota um, and not just the people directly affected but the rest of us. And let me explain that. To the first part of your question, so you can divide up how the states treat 
folks who have left prison behind into a few categories. So one category uh, includes only two states. Uh, the states of Maine and Vermont have a situation where you never lose the right to vote. Even if you're in prison for decades and decades in a life sentence, you never lose the right to vote. You can vote from prison. That's two states. Then there's the category that we just joined. We didn't before, but we, we are in this category now, which says that the minute you get out of prison, doesn't matter how long you're on probation, if you are at all, you get the right to vote back. So you don't have it in prison. It is suspended. It is taken away. But the minute you step foot out, you get it back. That's where we now are. Where we used to be is the category of states that says you only get your right to vote back when your entire sentence is done, the prison part and the non-prison part, the supervision part, uh, the probation part, which sometimes can last for years and even decades. And then finally, there's a group of states uh, clumped disproportionately in the Deep South where either actually or practically speaking, you may never get your right to vote back, period, ever. You could be out. You could be off paper, meaning no supervisory status, and you still won't get it back. So we made the leap, as many states have, North Dakota, Iowa, Florida, Indiana, Kentucky, we're definitely not alone. This is a, a nationwide trend across the country where we went from one category to I think a far better category, which is if you're in prison, you don't have it. But the minute you step out, you do. And in terms of the rationale, it went something like this. If a judge or if a jury or someone who knows the facts of a particular case, has heard the testimony, has heard from all sides, if that person or those people, if they, the experts, they make a decision that someone is safe enough, good enough, worthy enough not to be incarcerated anymore, it makes sense that they should have a say in who governs them and how. These are folks who are living among us. They're in the grocery store. They're in our workplaces. They're in our neighborhoods. They're trying to put their lives back together. And to the point I alluded to earlier, this isn't just about helping those folks, 55,000 or more in Minnesota. This is good for all of us, every single Minnesotan. And the reason is we know from study after study that people who feel a sense of investment and belonging and ownership in society with pro-social behavior like voting, they are far, far less likely to re-offend to be back where they once started, to get on the wrong path. So this isn't just some sort of act of charity we're doing for 50,000 people. This is good for the whole community. This is good for all of us. And I think on a bipartisan basis, people across this country and in Minnesota have come to that conclusion, that it makes sense that someone who is no longer incarcerated, um, who is among us, gets those rights back. And it has worked out very, very well in other states and I'm so glad that Minnesota has taken that leap. I think it's the right move and it's an investment in the whole state. Um, in some states that have restored the right to vote to people released from prison, the percentage of eligible citizens who have registered to vote has still been very low. Can you discuss the possible reasons for this and how do we re achieve better results in Minnesota? I am so glad you asked that question because that's what this interview in part is uh, is going towards. Look, we got to get the word out. There's no question. 55,000 people have the right to vote back. Do they know it yet? Do they fully appreciate it yet? That's up to us in the next, I'd say, you know, a year and a half or so between now and the November 2024 election. Let me give you an example of a state, unfortunately, that we don't want to be in this context. I'm going to pick on them a little bit. Great state, but I don't think they did a very good job here. In, the, in Washington state, 
uh, a number of years ago, they re-enfranchised about 24,000 people. So it was less than half of our figure, but still a lot of people, 24,000 people. In the election following the passage of that law, only a few hundred, a few hundred out of 24,000 actually voted. That is a real missed opportunity and one that we intend not to miss in Minnesota. Now, it's always everyone's decision about whether to vote, whether formerly incarcerated or not. That's the right you have as an American. But we want everyone to make an educated choice. We want them to understand that they have these rights back. So interviews like this, we hope, will help, as will our uh, intense and close cooperation with the Department of Corrections, with a coalition of groups throughout the state of Minnesota. We got to get the word out. It can be word of mouth. It can be neighbor to neighbor. It can be paid advertising. And we received some money from the legislature this year for that purpose of publicly uh, talking about this issue, particularly as the election approaches. So we have got to get the word out to those 55,000 people who are no longer in prison but once were that they now have the right to vote back. So it's all hands on deck and I hope folks listening to this will take heed and talk to their friends and neighbors and let people know that this is now a thing, that 55,000 plus Minnesotans have the right to vote back. Whether they vote or not, that's up to them, but we want them to know that they have the right to vote back. So it's part of a broad-based strategy that we have to do that. In uh, uh, Shortly, I will be participating in a media event with the Commissioner of Corrections, with the head of probation for the federal courts. Um, we're going to do a press event designed to generate interest in this issue. We're joining others in the nonprofit community at probation offices. Uh, who are getting the word out to those still on probation. We've already, of course, communicated with uh, the state-level probation officers in all 87 counties to make sure that as part of the materials that accompany someone or that are given to someone when they are released from prison, they have both a written uh, record of the fact that they have this right to vote back and that probation officers participate in telling them and reminding them more than once, hopefully more than twice, hopefully more than three times, that they have this right to vote back. So it's a community effort. Uh, we've all got to engage to get the word out so that people can understand their newfound rights. And feel a sense of belonging. And you use the word pro-social and, and the importance of, of that pro-social activity in you know, creating a, 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 a world with less violence. That's right. As I say, this is in everybody's interest. Uh, it's in all of our interests that somebody returning um, from incarceration feel a sense of belonging such that they don't reoffend, that they don't get back in prison. That's in everyone's interest. I don't care who you are, where you sit or stand politically, where you are geographically in Minnesota. That's just for the good of the whole. And so this will contribute to that. And so it's a big step. As I say, we are far from alone. We are, I think, the 24th state to do this. There are many more that are strongly considering it, that are almost at the finish line. It's a national trend and for good reason, I think. This transcends politics. This isn't a liberal or conservative issue. There are states that are red and states that are blue that have enacted this. I mentioned Iowa and North Dakota, for example. And so Minnesota is in very good company and and, and I think that certainly in the long term, this will be a big success. And in the short term, in the next year and a half or so, we've got to make sure it's a success also by telling people that this is a thing. This new law exists and that a lot of people, 55,000 plus, will now have the right to vote back. Great. Do you know what the steps are for formerly incarcerated folks to vote? Do they have to re-register? So – 
Um, it's very simple. Uh, there's nobody. There's no permission or screening or gatekeeping. A person who is formerly incarcerated should just go, for example, to the website mnvotes.gov. That's mn, like Minnesota, v-o-t-e-s. dot gov. Mnvotes.gov. We in the office of Secretary of State run that website, and it's easy. You just register as you normally would. Um, attest to things as you normally would, that you're a citizen, that you're 18 or over, that you're a resident of Minnesota, and so on. And that's it. It's not complicated. Wonderful. And so we also want to talk about um, the pre-registration of 16s and 17-year-olds. So share a little bit about those changes. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that, um, this is going to open up a new frontier of interest and civic participation for a lot of our young people in the state. And really, it's only really an adjustment of something we've already and for a long time had in state law. Before this bill was even passed, we had a feature in Minnesota state law that said if you're 17 but will be 18 by the next election, you could go ahead and register to vote. This just expands it really and changes it a bit to say all 17-year-olds and all 16-year-olds can now pre-register. So what does that term mean? It's not quite the same as registration. You can't really fully technically be registered until you're 18 years old, but it means you can get in line to be registered. It means you can fill out a form either in paper or online. Most people do it online. You can fill out all the information. It gives local election administrators the time to do the vetting and screening and filtering that we all expect as a matter of security. And then if everything checks out, if that person is who they say they are and they live where they say they live, then boom, automatically on their 18th birthday, they will be in the system. And I think what's important about this is it gets young people thinking about themselves as voters even before they formally and officially are voters. And we know from many studies that if that's the case, they're far more likely to vote in that first election where they're eligible to vote, whether they're 18 or 19 or 20. And we know that if a person does that, meaning if they vote in that first election where they're eligible, they are then far more likely to make that a lifelong habit. And I think that's good for all of us. And so this, I think, will... Um, be an opportunity for educators in high schools to really leverage this new law to um, heighten awareness and participation and interest. And I think that's really a good thing. Incidentally, I should point out, this isn't just theoretical. This isn't just happy talk. There are a number of studies out there that show that in states with pre-registration, there is a noticeable uptick in participation. So it's not just something we're hoping for or we're theorizing about. We know from other states, Florida, Hawaii, Others, and by the way, red states, blue states, doesn't matter the political complexion, we know that there is an uptick among our youngest voters in states with pre-registration. Um, I heard that a 16-year-old suggested and lobbied to have this pass. Um, but is this true? Do you know? Yes. Uh, not just one. There are a number of 16- and 17-year-olds. Uh, one student in particular at Washburn High School was very uh, involved. Others in years past, there was one from the Egan Apple Valley Rosemount district in particular. He's no longer there. He's now a college student, but he started lobbying for this. So yes, this was in large part youth driven. The idea being that young people could get interested or inspired or at least get a glimpse into the process by being eligible to do something related to elections. So that's really a wonderful byproduct of all of this and it puts Minnesota in a good position. And if I may, I just want to put an exclamation point on um, how this and really all of the reforms that we're talking about today are nonpartisan in origin 
and nonpartisan in effect. And this is a good example. So as we were trying to shepherd this bill through the legislature, I reached out to a Secretary of State colleague of mine who's a friend of mine even though we disagree on a lot. He's the conservative Republican Secretary of State of Louisiana. Now, I am not a conservative Republican. He is. But we're friendly with one another. His state has pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. So I asked him whether he would considering, consider authoring a letter that we could hand out to legislators, in essence saying, look, Secretary Simon and I disagree on a lot, but here's something we can agree on and we love this law in our state. And he did it and we handed it out to legislators. So it's one of many examples of reform, the ones that we're talking about today, that are not partisan in origin and they're definitely not partisan in effect because there are red states and blue states and purple states and all states in between that implement these reforms. And why 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 is it vital for American democracy to have young people voting? Well, I think it's about um, refreshing and renewing our civic spirit, our soul as a nation. Um, and it doesn't matter where folks sit or stand politically. You know, democracy. Um, is an ongoing project. We can't just sort of rest on our laurels or spike the football or just assume generation after generation that it will continue and thrive. It's got to be tended to, right? If I can mix my metaphors, it's like a garden. You've got to tend to it. You can't just leave it and hope things will go okay. And that really requires that every generation renew that commitment to democracy. It may look a little different from generation to generation. It looks different now than it did two or three or five or ten generations ago and that's broadly speaking a very, very good thing. Um, but, but I think getting young people involved is, is a chance to, as I say, refresh and renew our democracy and, and that's been our tradition by the way for over 200 years and that's a good thing and every generation brings to it a different insight or a different habit or maybe a new ritual of a kind or a different sensibility and I think that's a good and healthy thing. One of the other laws that was recently passed is the permanent absentee ballot list. Can you talk about how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. And this is another one where we join many other states who have already implemented this. I think one thing that we've learned pretty clearly over the last few years is voting habits are changing. And one particular way in which they're changing is more and more voters, particularly Minnesota, don't necessarily want to be told that the only way they can vote is on one particular day in one particular place during a given set of particular hours, meaning election day. More and more people across this country and in particular in Minnesota have expressed a strong preference for voting at a different time earlier. Now, we in Minnesota have a 46-day absentee ballot period. We're tied with South Dakota for the longest absentee ballot period. So that's a long time. You can start voting on day minus 46 if you wish. But more and more people have expressed an interest in doing that, not necessarily on day minus 46. The vast majority of people who vote early do so in the last week or 10 days for all the reasons you'd, you'd think about. People want to wait till close to the election to get the most information or look at the advertisements or the debates or, or whatever it is to, to inform their choices. Um, and let me just give you a, a quick example. It's, it's um, one that may um, be an extraordinary one, uh, but I think it's instructive for, for folks listening out there. So the 2018 election, 2018, about a quarter of Minnesotans voted absentee. 
meaning they voted before the election. And by the way, for those listening, if you're interested in that and haven't done it, the way to get an absentee ballot is simply to go to the website I mentioned earlier, which is mnvotes.gov, mnvotes.gov, and just order the ballot to come to you instead of going to it at a polling place. Anyway, we were at about a quarter, about 26 percent, I think it was, in 2018. Then COVID came and the 2020 COVID election, the pandemic election. And for so many reasons, people weren't as interested in going to a public space. Remember, 2020, that was pre-vaccine. So there was a lot of anxiety and even fear. So in the 2020 presidential election in Minnesota, 58% of Minnesotans voted absentee. Put another way, when you flip that around, that means only 42% a minority voted the traditional way. Now, to be fair, in 2022, that number came down to earth as COVID receded and we were back to about a quarter again. But the point is that um, we need a system that accommodates where voters and how voters want to vote. Um, and, and this new reform, this new law, again, nonpartisan in origin and effect would do that. And basically what it means is if a person decides that they pretty much permanently want to vote absentee, that they're done with polling places, they can put their name on a list and then automatically every couple years when there's an election, they will get mailed an absentee ballot. That's really it. It's worked very, very well in other states. A number of states, a growing list have adopted this and you can always – Take your name off if you said, you know, I missed the polling place or I moved or whatever the reason is. You don't have to give a reason. That's OK. Um, but to put your name on a list really uh, cuts through a, a lot of red tape, makes the system more efficient and it really sort of meets Minnesotans where they are and it accommodates the way that more and more Minnesotans wish to vote and makes it easier, not harder for them to make that choice. So with this absentee ballot, what happens if you do move? Is it up to the voter to let you know that you got a new address and how do I know to let you know? And right. Yeah, we work with the postal system uh, very closely on change of address forms, by the way. So sometimes that can be forwarded. But generally speaking, a good practice is for the voter to let their county or let or, or re-register or refresh their registration with our office as well. Again, that website is mnvotes.gov. So it's easy to refresh a uh, voter registration. Uh, it's done all the time to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people a year. And so you can have that ballot follow you. And how do you protect from fraud? One person, one vote. How do you ensure that, that there's no fraud in that system? Oh, sure. In the absentee ballot system mm -hmm. generally. Yeah. And I get this question a lot um, and I'm glad you asked it. So let me slightly hijack your question and and talk about one particular sense in which people sometimes ask me this question and for good reason. I understand it. They'll say, look, absentee balloting, you're talking about mailing someone a ballot. Well, you're going to be mailing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of ballots. So what's to prevent a mailbox thief, a cunning, clever mailbox thief from knowing that County X or City Y sent their ballots in the mail on a Wednesday and hanging out in neighborhoods on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever and swiping 10 or 100 or more ballots for themselves. These are fresh, totally blank ballots. What's to prevent that? All these blank ballots floating out in the mail? That doesn't sound secure. Here's why it's very secure and even more secure in Minnesota than almost any other state. We have a, um, a safeguard in Minnesota that few states do. We have a signature requirement. Almost every other state has that where the voter has to sign it. But we have something else. When you order an absentee ballot, so when you go to mnvotes.com, 
of, for example, and order that, you have to provide a form of personal identifying information. It can be part of a social security number. It can be a driver's license number. You can choose what it is. So you order the ballot by giving that piece of personal identifying information. Then once you complete the ballot, you also have to send it back with that form of personal identification, a number, something like that. So back to the mailbox thief. Unless that mailbox thief knew not only your personal identification numbers, but which particular one you used when you ordered the ballot and the person forged your signature and the person forged the witness signature that we require, unless all three things are true, that would-be mailbox thief is going to be very disappointed because he or she might send in that ballot thinking they're all clever and cunning. Guess what? It will never be counted. It will be spoiled because it will not be – it will be obviously a fake. And so that's why in Minnesota, to my knowledge, over many, many years, we have had almost zero instances of anything like that. It may actually be zero. I'm just leaving myself a little wiggle room. I can't recall one. Let's put it that way Um, because we have those security features in place. So Minnesotans, your listeners in particular can rest assured, we have security uh, precautions in place including some that very few other states have to make sure the system is very honest, it's very secure, it's very accurate. So when filling out the absentee ballot, some you said there needs to be a witness. Is, can that be anybody? How does that work? Right. So as I mentioned, we have the three layers. You have the personal identifying information, the voter, uh, him or herself has to do it, and the witness. Right. And that could just be someone else in your home with yes, you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It very commonly is. It could be a partner. It could be a spouse. It could be uh, – it has to be someone who's eligible to vote. Uh, but apart from that, it could be anyone. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. It could be anyone. And then people can check and see if their ballot was processed too. Oh, yes. that, how, does, how does that work? That's right. It works just like an Amazon package or a UPS <laughs> package. You can track to make sure. So you don't have to pop that thing in the mail and say a prayer or hope and wonder. Oh, I hope they get it. I'll never know, I guess, whether they counted or my ballot was received. No, you can know. You absolutely can know. You can go on our website, mnvotes.gov, and you can track it just like you can a package. And you can know for certainty that it was received and that it was processed. So what was the situation prior to the new law on um, on absentee ballot and, and so – and how, how do people sign up for their absentee ballot? Right. The law we had in place was, uh, to put it mildly, imperfect. We did have a system where people could put themselves on a list but it was only a list to get an absentee ballot application. So you could sign up saying, I really love this absentee voting thing, put me on the list and it would mean every two years, for example, you would get an absentee ballot application in the mail which you would then have to fill out and send back. Well, that's a mild convenience, but you could already go to the website and just order every two years. So it didn't really move the ball much, I would say. This has us joining a number of other states in making sure that if you've made that determination that that's the way you want to vote now and for the foreseeable future, you get the ballot, not just the application to get a ballot. You get the ballot mailed to you and sent to you on a timely basis so you can make that decision. Uh, another new law will allow people to be registered to vote automatically when they apply for or renew a driver's license. Is this happening right now? Not quite yet. Um, we It will happen in time for the 2024 election. We made sure the law was written in a way 
that it will become effective once we certified that it is system ready. And we're working very closely with our partners and the Department of Public Safety. They're the ones who run the driver's license system. And so we hope and expect this will be up and running well in time for the 2024 presidential election. But if I can just say for a minute, this this reform, so-called automatic voter registration, is a, a real positive game changer in Minnesota. I wish it went by a different name though because the term automatic voter registration, I think many people, many of your listeners might be thinking, wait a minute, automatic? So is this some sort of AI <laughs> thing or some robot or whatever? No. Real flesh and blood breathing human beings are still filtering and screening and vetting for security purposes. So don't worry about that. Um, but what this means is if someone is an eligible voter and they get a driver's license um, or renew a driver's license, they will automatically be presumed to wish to register to vote. You can always opt out later, but they will be presumed to want to vote and want to be registered to vote and they will be put in a pile to be filtered and vetted and screened. I just want to really reassure folks, all of that screening is still going on by actual human beings. There's no robots. There's no AI, nothing like that. So that's a good thing. But it means that potentially hundreds of thousands of people who are eligible voters but not yet registered to vote will be in the system. That doesn't mean they have to vote, but it will mean they will have been screened and filtered and they will be in the system to vote. Again, many states, red, blue, purple and otherwise, have already passed something like this. And so we join their good company. And I think it's going to go a long way to getting more people in the system earlier and it's going to make our voting rolls even more secure. Why? Well, it means that people will have been in the system and subject to the screening weeks and in most cases months before the election. Uh, and that's something that we should all want in the sense of more security, uh, more integrity for the system than we even have right now. And so I think it's a win-win and part of that balance that I spoke of earlier between access and security. I think we've done a very good job historically in Minnesota of getting that right. And I think we're, as a result of this law, going to continue to get that right. So um, people will be registered to vote um, when they get their driver's license or renew a driver's license. Are there other times, like if they're applying for uh, medical assistance or other places where that they will also be um, registered to vote? Yes. In time, that is our hope. And the law was written in a way that we can add agencies or we can add interactions with government. The strong advice we got from the states and we, we, we reached out to states – of varying political complexions, by the way, so-called red, so-called blue states, whatever, to say, hey, what's your advice for us? You've been doing automatic voter registration. And I believe it was 100 percent of the states said, don't bite off more than you can chew at first. Start with driver's licenses. Don't do 10 other things and then move on to other agencies and other interactions. So you mentioned medical assistance. That's one that some states that have been doing it for a long time have adopted as well. Our intention, our hope is that over time, whether it's a fishing license or hunting license with the DNR or medical assistance or whatever, that more and more interactions with government will be included. But there's no question and no surprise, I'm sure, to your listeners that driver's licenses is, is – that's that's the big one. That's 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 the hugest one. That's the – by size, I don't even think it's close in terms of others. So we're tackling that biggest one first the biggest uh, interaction with government of all the ones that we've listed. And then over time, we'll be able to move on to some others. So is automatic voter registration an opt-in or opt-out process? It's an opt-out process. So a person is presumed to want to register to vote, 
But anyone, at any time, the day after, the week after, the month after, the year after, can always opt out. We don't have compulsory voting in this country, obviously. No one has to vote. No one has to be part of the system. But it presumes you wish to be until you say you don't want to be. And if you don't want to be, it's super easy just to opt out and say no thank you. Does this law apply to uh, state IDs as well or just driver's licenses? Great question. I'm glad you asked that and I should have clarified that. Yes, it applies to driver's licenses and Minnesota state IDs. And do you know approximately how many new voters you're going to be expecting because of these new laws? So I said before and I know this is a a vague term but uh, several hundred thousand Minnesotans. Uh, We have – Probably around the last I checked, I think around 800,000 or so Minnesotans who are eligible to vote but not yet registered. But of course, not 100 percent of them will seek to get a driver's license. So it's a little tough to estimate but I would say definitely several hundred thousand Minnesotans would be affected and newly on the voting rolls which is great. Now, they may decide not to vote but at least they'll be registered to vote and ready to engage if they wish to. And what's the easiest way to register to vote? Well, the easiest way is our website, which is mnvotes.gov. mnvotes.gov, super simple. It'll take most people two minutes, maybe three if you're a little slow at it. Really, really simple. And again, there's a lot of back-end work that happens, the filtering, screening, vetting that I talked about to make the system secure and honest. Um, So how can people find out more about these new voting laws? Well, um, we on our website, again, mnvotes.gov, have sort of – I have them sort of laid out uh, and we're continuing to explain them them to people on the website. Interviews like this help as well. Uh, We're working with a lot of community partners with a statewide reach like the League of Women Voters, for example, a great civic group that is um, doing a great job of going around the state and educating folks on that. Um, so we take and I take every opportunity that, that we can to just get the word out about these new laws, working with community partners. And our philosophy in our office is, is that you know, we want to work with trusted messengers and partners where they already are. That's why both of you being here is so important and thank you for it. Um, we understand we can't possibly in the office of Secretary of State create or recreate relations in the community that others have. So we rely a lot on partners. Nonprofit partners, um, for-profit partners, uh, government um, who already have relationships with particular communities to be that messenger, to be that megaphone uh, because we know we can't possibly recreate those great and dynamic relationships. So the uh, the bottom line is if you go to mnvotes.gov, you can find it all in written form but there will hopefully be a lot of community partners out there repeating and repeating and repeating what these new reforms are, what they mean, and how people can take advantage of them. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, mnvotes.gov. You can go there, find out all the information about the new voting laws and register to vote. I think I really want to talk a little bit more about why we want to vote. Sure. And I I was wondering, do you remember the first time you voted? Very well. Mm. I was a college student and I voted by absentee. So I born and raised in Minnesota, but I went to school out of Minnesota. And I remember ordering that absentee ballot, very carefully reading through, making sure I did everything, got a witness, all of that. 
I was very excited. It was a presidential election, so it seemed like really high stakes and I felt like I was a part of something. It was great. But you're right. Not everyone has that same enthusiasm that I did as an 18-year-old or not everyone has it as a 48 or 68 or 88-year-old. I, you know, It's a complex subject. I'm glad you asked about it in terms of the reasons to vote. I do have a theory though, uh, particularly when we're talking to younger people uh, about voting. I say this. I say and I'll say now again that I think too often when we talk to audiences about the reasons to vote, we focus – only and to the exclusion of other things on sort of the, the good deed arguments, you know, the argument that it's the right thing to do, the argument that you want to be something part of something larger than yourself, the argument that people fought and bled and sometimes died for the right to vote. Now, all of those are essential arguments. I'm not suggesting in the least that we ever ditch those as arguments. I'm saying we should add to them and not only talk about those but add to those and I'll always talk about those but also point out to people that you know what else is true? Voting is in your own self-interest. This is not just an act of charity. This is not a blood drive. <laughs> this is not saying as you do in a blood drive, will you please, please, please do this selfless act for someone you're never going to meet? It would be so kind of you. Um, this is not that. This is in addition to all the things I just mentioned. People did fight and bleed and die for the right to vote. Let's never ditch that as an argument. But let's also add to it that this is in your interest. Why? Because communities that vote tend to get attention, whether that's right or wrong. And I say community in any way you want to define community. It can be geographic, demographic, an affinity group, you know, stamp collectors, butterfly collectors, whatever it is. However you define community, if you vote, you're probably going to get more attention, which means you're probably likelier to get the outcomes that you want. And so this is an act of self-interest in addition to being the right thing to do and I think we've got to focus on that. There are other things as well and variants of that question. Not everyone sees uh, the system um, in the same way or using the same lens that maybe we sitting here today do. There's skepticism. There is cynicism. There's even hostility. And I understand that too. And that's a separate question I'm happy to address also. But generically speaking, generally speaking, we've got to talk about the good deed issue. Sure, never ditch that. But also talk about how it's in your self-interest to vote. So what do you say to those cynics that say their vote doesn't matter? Well, let me talk about the most obvious um, form of that cynicism. So – you might encounter and we all have, I assume, someone who says, look, here's why I'm not voting and they might not say it in these words but that this is the kind of sum and substance of what they're getting at. What they're conveying at least is, look, I'm not voting not because I don't know the rules or where to go or what the website is. I'll tell you why I'm not voting. I'm not voting because I'm sick and tired of politics, politicians, broken promises, a system that does not work for me, does not work for my community and why should I lend my name and my time and my effort? to a system that is broken and maybe even illegitimate. So the argument goes. And the person might even say something like, look, I consider my um, sitting on the sidelines kind of a protest. And my response to that is uh, really words I saw on a T-shirt a few years ago, believe it or not. And the T-shirt really crystallized it for me. The T-shirt said, failure to vote is not an act of rebellion. It's an act of surrender. Ooh. I like that. 
I like so, that. Say it again. Mm-hmm. No, that was right. good. Failure to vote is not an act of rebellion. It's an act of surrender. Meaning, look, you may think that by sitting this one out, you're striking a blow for some cause. But really, you're not. What you're doing is giving up. And what you're doing more particularly is you're, you're, you're doubling the vote of someone who disagrees with you on everything because she's voting or he's voting. You're not. So you've added strength to that other person's vote. You're giving up. Don't give up something of value. The vote is valuable. It's a thing of value. And like anything else that you discard that's something of value, somebody is probably going to pick it up and find it and use it for themselves. Don't do that. It's tempting. It's even understandable why you might have that inkling or that idea, but don't give in to it. Go vote and it's important that you do and it's in your interest that you do. Let me address another variant though that I sometimes hear about particularly from young people but really people of all ages but particularly from young people. It's not a protest issue. It's not a lack of of knowing where to go to register issue. It's this. I get this a lot. People will say, man, you know, here's why I'm not voting. This ballot has like 30-some contests on it, okay? I have an opinion on like three or four or five or two. I have an opinion on President of the United States and maybe it's the other end of the ballot I've sometimes found and school board because my friend's mom is running or my neighbor's running. So it's not necessarily which office. But um, and they say, look, I just don't have the time to figure out all the candidates for county commissioner or judge or whatever. I don't really know about these offices, and I'd almost feel bad voting, like I'd be, you know, guessing or voting for the coolest sounding name, or and that doesn't seem right. So I'm just going to sit it out. And my response to that is, um, <laughs> is, is is strong and passionate, which is I say, particularly in front of young audiences, you know what? Look, go in. Vote for the three or four you have an opinion on and then leave. <laughs> Look, in a perfect world, would I want you to vote on all the contests? Yes, I would. But we don't live in a perfect world. And you know what? Yes, you're 18, 19, 20, 25. Someday you will have an opinion on county commissioner and judge. Just because you don't now or don't have the time or the inclination, don't let that psych you out and, uh, and, and keep you away from voting for president or school board or whatever. Go in, vote for the stuff you have an opinion on, leave the rest blank. And here's an important sort of uh, official point. A lot of people must understand. They think that if they leave contest blank, that their ballot will be spoiled. No, 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 no. (laughs) You can vote for two out of 36 or three out of 36 or 10 out of 36. Nothing is spoiled about that. So that's number one. Number two, we've got a secret ballot in this country. No one's going to know. There's no mark on your forehead. There's no tell. There's no anything. Unless you say something to someone, no one's ever going to know that you didn't vote on all the contests. So don't worry about that. There should be zero guilt, zero shame. Vote for what you know. Leave the rest blank if you need to and that's it. So those are some of the arguments that I encounter and as some of my responses. So well, we're um, uh, we're doing a sit down with Secretary of State Steve, Steve Simon to learn about recent changes in Minnesota election law, and let's just review again um, all those changes. Yeah. What, what give us again the thumbnail ske- sketch of yeah, what well, the Minnesota legis- legislature did? Yeah, this year. really a lot. Uh, as I, and as I mentioned earlier in our interview, it's the most consequential set of changes in the last literally fifty years since 1973, and they include things like automatic voter registration, things like pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, things like restoring the right to vote for people who have left prison behind 
years and sometimes decades ago, by the way, and things like a permanent absentee list so that those who want to vote absentee, which is a fancy word for before election day, they can do it without a hassle. They can sign up for a list and then on into the years they can get mailed a ballot. So those are the ones we've highlighted today. There are others that we didn't uh, dive deeply into like uh, anti-disinformation provisions, election worker protection and the like. But the point is when it comes to democracy, we came out of this legislative session as a straight state stronger than ever with reforms that are uh, nonpartisan in origin, nonpartisan in effect. They're going to affect and make voting better for all Minnesota. It will be a stronger system, a more accessible system, a cleaner system uh, than it's ever been. And that's a good thing. I've learned a lot here. I didn't know that you couldn't or that you – when you're filling out the ballot that you didn't have to fill in all of them. I, I'm one of the ones that go for like the cool sounding names you know, <laughs> if I don't know enough information about the candidate. So next time I'll be sure just to vote for the people that I know more about. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's interesting. And that can sometimes cause problems with ballot questions though, can't it? If you leave it blank, then it can actually count for the side that you got to be kind of careful on those, correct? Right. right. We have a, a, a somewhat quirky rule in Minnesota that when it comes to constitutional amendments, which we've had from time to time and will have on the 2024 ballot, that a blank ballot is counted as a no. So there are two ways to vote no on constitutional amendments. One is to fill in the oval for no and the other is to leave it blank. That's also considered a no vote. So you're right about that. But in candidate versus candidate elections, there's zero effect other than nobody gets a vote at all in that contest from that voter. Now I feel like I'm uh, – what ballot, constitutional ballot will be on the 2024? Well, there's one for sure. The legislature might add another one and the one in 2024 will be a renewal – of the ballot measure that was passed in 2008, which dedicates a portion of certain taxes to the arts and the outdoors. And that's something that we've had, again, um, on the books since 2008, but it's coming up for renewal. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, uh, yes, I would. I mean, as we sit here in the summer of 2023, we have a pretty long runway until the next election. This is a great time to be talking about this stuff because people can think about it without all of the, frankly, noise of a political campaign. Now, that will be coming up soon. Keep in mind that Minnesota is now a presidential primary state and our presidential nominating primary is in the first week in March on the so-called Super Tuesday date. That's not too far from now. That isn't super long, uh, long time from now. And so really in the next few months, Minnesotans will be voting for president of the United States if they choose in the presidential primary. So it's going to sneak up on us. I think it's important over the next year, year and a half as we uh, get closer to the 2024 election to not only take stock of these new laws as we've been discussing today, but to push back against disinformation, against election denial, against those who distort what the system is. You know, I always say it's it's totally fair game, of course, to have long conversations and debates about what our election system ought to be and reasonable, good people um, can have disagreements about that. But where we get into problems is when people distort what the system is and do those in a way that um, unfairly undermine confidence in the system. Of course, people should always and do always you know, question and, and voice skepticism. That's always OK, of course, in this country. 
but um, but you can't attempt to hijack the system with disinformation. We saw some of that in the aftermath of the 2020 election. At its at its most extreme, of course, it resulted in acts of violence like the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, but generally speaking, I think um, we've just all got to uh, be aware of the potential for that kind of disinformation. And, and that sort of goes hand in hand with edu- educating people in a factual way about these new election law changes, what they are and what they are not. Yeah, because I mean, I, I think we all really crave and deserve a trust economy, and and to trust that our vote, our vote, our vote, our vote, our vote, vote will be counted, and right. that there's not fraud in the system, and so feeling that trust, and and with so many people kind of like trying to, seems like it, it, it seems like that's just not happening right now. How do we how do we reinforce trust in our in our in each other? Yes. Boy, isn't that a great question? Thank you for that. You know, I think we've learned a lot after the 2020 election in particular. I think it's important, as I say, that we, again, reasonable, patriotic, honest people can have very different opinions on what the system should be, what laws we should add, what laws we should subtract. Of course, people who disagree with me, for example, on maybe every one of these reforms, that's okay, of course. Um, But we can't let that get in the way of honest information about what the system is. So I think being as factual as possible about what the system is and really uh, another real mission of mine in our office is to continue the process of of pulling back the curtain, being as transparent as we possibly can about the many, many checks and balances that we have in our system. I totally understand given the political climate why there are people out there, perhaps listeners today, who are skeptical. Is it really safe? Is it really secure? Are we sure that there isn't a significant fraud out there? I wouldn't blame people for asking those questions or even having those conclusions. My response to that is to speak clearly about what the facts are and to educate people about the many processes that we have in place in Minnesota to ensure honesty and integrity. So let me – a couple of quick things if I have time. Sometimes people ask me, well, you know, how do you know that uh, – what the, the, the fraud or the misconduct numbers are? And let me give you the example from the 2020 – election because we're still getting in some numbers from 2022. So the freshest, most complete numbers are for the 2020 election, which was huge. We were number one in America. We had 3.3 million voters in Minnesota. The number of cases, provable actual cases of misconduct of any kind, whether it was voting, registration, or even attempted voting or registration, like they didn't complete the thing, but they attempted to do the, uh, to complete the thing, 17. 17. Now, look, that's 17 too many. All of us want it to be zero, of course, but let's put that in some rational perspective. We had 3.3 million voters. That is a speck. That is a microscopic issue. Now, we've always got to be on guard. We can't just assume it always will be. But I think the reason for that is we do in law and in practice have procedures in place that ought to give people who are doubtful or skeptical a lot more confidence. Let me just give you a mini example. In the wake of the 2020 election, there was a lot of talk, false talk I will say, about elections equipment being somehow compromised, that there was elections equipment changing votes from candidate A to candidate B. This was a familiar part of the disinformation narrative by folks who who didn't like the outcome of uh, one or more contests in 2020. But Minnesota has a law in place. Bet you didn't know. I wouldn't expect people to know by the way. Why would they? Uh, Minnesota has a law in place. It says everyone who has elections equipment, 
a county, a township, a city, must, it is mandatory, must, sometime two weeks before the election in that window, they must trot out that elections equipment for public view in a publicly noticed and posted way where anyone off the street, you don't have to be a big shot or a VIP. You don't even have to live in that area. If you live in Minneapolis and you want to go to Duluth's or you live in Mankato's and you want to go to Bemidji's, that's great. It's called a public accuracy test. That's the formal name. And you can go in and you can watch the local effect election officials put those machines through the paces. They actually try to trick the machines by putting stray marks on the ballot, voting for more than one candidate, seeing if the machine will pick up on the fact that, yeah, you voted for candidate A or candidate B or you circled one or you underlined the other and will that screw up the machine. So the lesson here is not that I expect thousands of people to take half a day off from work uh, and show up at public accuracy tests in city halls and county courthouses across the state. I don't expect that, of course. Uh, but this ought to be a comforting thing to people who might, rightly or wrongly, have suspicions about voting equipment. And quickly I'll say, let's talk about after the election. A lot of people don't realize, and why would they necessarily? They have lives to lead and families to tend to. We have a rigorous system in Minnesota of post-election audits and reviews. So every single one of our 87 counties must do an audit of their own results. They have to check their work and then we check their work. In fact, we have a hearing that is televised, that is open to the public, where we have literally justices of the Minnesota Supreme Court drawing out of a glass bowl at random precincts to be audited and reviewed by our office in all eight of our congressional districts. So that too is an example where people ought to be more comforted um, about the systems we have in place. I've just given two examples. There are several others, both before the election and after the election, where to those who are doubters or who are skeptics or just simply have questions that have arisen because they've heard someone say something, these are the things that ought to give them some more well, comfort and I, we're going to do more educating about that. More education. Than we know. I thank you so much, Secretary of State Steve Simon. Uh, this has been a special uh, sponsored by Let People Vote, Twin Cities Chapter. I've been Laura Hedlund. And I'm Katie DeSalle with Frogtown Community Radio. Thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.